This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Stephen Collins a Baha'i who graduated from the University of Wisconsin with double majors in physics and philosophy and double minors in psychology and math. He then went to North Carolina to go to graduate school, and it is in North Carolina where Stephen met his wife, Sally. He now provides computer support for a school system. He and Sally have been involved in a number of service organizations, and Stephen is a Wikipedia enthusiast. Stephen mentions two works by Baha'u'llah in the interview, The Seven Valleys and the Kitabi Igan. The Kitabi Igan means the Book of Certitude in English. Stephen also makes reference to a 12-step organization called Baha'is in Recovery Fellowship, or BIRF for short. I started the interview by asking Stephen where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was, uh, my father was in the Air Force, so... Um I was actually born in the Philippines at Clark Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And then, I think before I was a few months old, they were transferred, or we were transferred back to the States, and they popped around a couple of air bases for temporary assignments until they were transferred to Spain. My memories pretty much begin in Spain. Uh-huh. How old were you? I think we arrived there in 68, so I was about five. I was born in 63. Uh-huh. And then um, childhood for a couple of years there, and then back to the States, into Wisconsin, mm-hmm. where I spent all my, rest of my childhood and adult until 1987 when I came to North Carolina. Okay, so, so you went to grade school and high school in uh, Wisconsin? Correct. Uh-huh. What did you do after you graduated from high school? I think I took a year off and got a job at the Holiday Inn doing busser work, and then I became head busser. Uh-huh. And then I, I knew I was going to go to graduate school, but I think I took a year off in between. Now, where did you go to undergraduate school? University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. And what did you study there? Um, I had double majors of physics and philosophy and double minors of psychology and math. And how is it that you chose those majors? Physics came out of sort of a high school experience where I had very much focused on sciences. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really more interested in astronomy, but physics was as close as I could get because the department was a physics and astronomy department. Mm-hmm. But they didn't actually have any astronomy uh, degrees or emphasis or anything. You got a physics degree. Mm-hmm. The philosophy started out as a requirement for humanities to the bachelor's degree. And... I was struggling with what do I want to take, what do I want to take, so I took Philosophy 101, and I 
discovered that there were other people in the world that cared what they thought. <laughs> oh. I had really no appreciation of philosophy before that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also very much liked the teacher and wound up following him to all the classes he taught, and that almost amounted to a philosophy major just doing that. Mm-hmm. And the, the initial class was very basic, you know, general philosophy, but from there, that teacher actually taught a whole series of courses about the philosophy of religion, mm-hmm. where he didn't get into the administrative aspects of the religions or the, the historical aspects of wars and all that stuff. He just talked about sort of digesting religions down to philosophical principles and then examined that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually was my introduction to Professor Revelation, even though he later said that's not what he meant at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what was your position on religion at that time? When I was taking the philosophy courses, mm-hmm. I had gone through a period of loose atheism slash agnosticism, sort of, up until then, and had really, there, the, one of the first classes he took that was about religion was really about Buddhism and the Buddha, and I kind of accepted him as my first prophet, if you will, but then right after that, there was Christianity, and then he did a short class on, or as part of a class on Islam. So I got a quick tour of the prophets, and, and whenever they were boiled down to philosophical statements, it all seemed to make a lot of sense. So at that point, I was convinced enough that I wanted to assemble my own religion out of, for myself, just a personal religion, that it allowed for the input of all of the prophets that I could find. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, um, my best friend at the time got a flyer on the Baha'i Faith and asked me to go so that I would ask questions about what is, you know, what's important in the religion so that she could hear the answers. <laughs> and I looked at it as an opportunity to investigate a religion I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. And so you went? I did. And um, what was it like? It was a very small sort of the, uh, the main couple that hosted it were uh, academic couple teachers in the English department over at UWSP, the University of Wisconsin, Stephen Point. And they served, you know, English tea, and it was a polite conversation. And I was all sort of go and let's find out what's everything to understand. And I had done no research at all um, about the Baha'i faith in particular, but I had done, of course, all these classes on religion, so I knew lots of really deep questions to ask, like, what is a prophet? What is the relationship between prophet and God? And why should I care? Mm-hmm. Stuff sure. like that. Yeah. And what happened was very quickly they decided that at firesides where I was the predominant member, what we basically did was read through the Kitabi Ikan. Now a couple of things here. What is a fireside, and what is the Kitabi Ikan? What is a fireside? A fireside is a. It can be a variety of things. It's basically a meeting for information about the Baha'i Faith for those who want to learn more about it. And it's tuned somewhat, sometimes it's more presentation-oriented, where someone has a talk they want to give, and other times it's really open-ended what questions from the audience there might be. Um, The firesides I attended usually were just me, but there were several where there were a few other people, and, and really out of respect for them, I kind of withdrew into the background whenever there were other people there because I knew that they had a different approach to what they wanted to learn. And sometimes there was just a formal speaker, and I would just sort of listen. So your first meeting or fireside, you posed these questions to them? and Yeah, they, they, they essentially began by asking, so do you have any questions? Mm-hmm. 
And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the the Kitabia Khan is the um, Persian name for a book of Baha'u'llah's called, in English, The Book of Certitude. And it's essentially his main discussion about, I guess you could say, the theological questions of religion. What is God? What is a prophet? What is the relationship? And, and why does it matter to humanity? That's one way of putting it anyway. Mm-hmm. And so you started studying this with this group of people? Wow. Right. They were all Baha'is except me and my friend. Okay. And so how did that go? Well, it was very exciting, actually. After one year, she declared, and after two years, I did. Okay. When you say declared, what does that mean? Accepted that the Baha'is were, that Baha'u'llah was the prophet of the Baha'i faith, and that he was a prophet, and that that was the religion you wanted to join. So this wasn't really a, I don't want to make it a small thing, but... Uh, you were sort of going, when you heard about Buddha, you believed in Buddha. When you heard about Jesus, you basically believed in Jesus. And when you heard Muhammad, you basically believed in Muhammad. And then you heard about Baha'u'llah, and you basically believed in Baha'u'llah. Right. So that's sort of the progression. Right. But then I, under, I, I, I rearranged the order of things and, and gave a little more historical context that it wasn't just a matter of another prophet. It was that things were going somewhere. Mm. It wasn't just arbitrary bits of history and people in it. Actually, the, the one prophet I examined after the Baha'i faith, as a Baha'i, I continued my interest, if you will, mm-hmm. and kept studying other religions. And next prophet I, I did some serious study on was Zoroaster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember being in a, a university library in a dark corner, digging through books that hadn't seen the light of day for a long time, reading about Zoroaster, and going, this is so good! <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, yeah. it elaborated on the point that from a Baha'i point of view, you can accept all of the prophets of God and not argue over who's more important or why they matter or, you know, is this one yes or no a prophet kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a predisposition to assume that something about God is there and it's your job to figure it out, mm-hmm. not draw a line of proof that they have to meet. Mm-hmm. At least that's my approach. Sure. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Well, in the short term, there had been a consistent buzz amongst the community that um, the book that I really need to read is The Seven Valleys, and there never seemed to be a copy around. And shortly after I became a Baha'i, they had gotten one and gave it to me. And I read it in one sitting and sort of laughed and cried and you know, did all kinds of things. <laughs> that was very exciting for me to finally get that book. It's still my favorite Baha'i book. And tell me about that book. Well, it's called Baha'u'llah's Most Mystical Composition. It's a fairly short book. It's written in the style of a a Sufi Muslim approach, uh, the original of which is by a person named Atar, of Atar of Roses. That's his last name. And the book in English translation could be called The Conference of the Birds. And both The Seven Valleys and The Conference of the Birds is about a group or, or what it's like to grow spiritually and both of them describe the voyage as if you're going through seven valleys. Mm-hmm. And each valley has a, a characteristic, prime characteristic, and sort of what that, how that colors your life at that point in time and sort of experiences you might expect to go through at that point. So for like the first valley is the Valley of Surge, mm-hmm. and it describes the need for the surge and the sort of burning desire to find something but not knowing what you're looking for, the struggle to try to make sense of the world and finding that 
everyone seems to be looking for something, but nobody really knows the answer. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The books aren't identical, but um, Baha'u'llah wrote it in a style of the Conference of the Birds, basically to sort of communicate in the language of other Sufis, other, other Muslim mystics. Mm-hmm. Um, he used their style of structure to sort of explain his point of view to them. Mm-hmm. And how did that book affect you? Oh, I was ecstatic. I was beside myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was, by any measure, the most extraordinary book I had ever read, including the Akan. Um, I've read it, oh, I don't know, a couple of dozen times by now. I get something out of it every time I read it. I get that from any of Baha'u'llah's writings, too. Mm-hmm. The, the aim of the book is one that I'm especially interested in. And how would you say it changed your perspective or your life? It yeah. confirmed that the search I had been on wasn't wasn't just a fancy. It elaborated that there was a point to it all. The and point. The point being that it is possible to arrive at a spiritual triumphant position in life mm. that can free you from the way the world is so much that you don't have to give up or bring yourself down to the way the rest of the world tends to operate, not without repercussions to all of that, but in the sense that the repercussions don't matter. That if if the world reacts to you by forcing you to go through suffering circumstances, so be it. If it forces you to go through triumphant circumstances, so be it. It doesn't change who you are. Whereas success or opposition in a, in a worldly sense can certainly change how you act or what choices you do. But that there was a real point to that kind of condition, that place in your life or that place with respect to God that frees you, that saves you. Were you still an undergraduate at college when this, yes. when you ran into the Baha'is and... Um, I had just reached the point where I was about to graduate at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took, um, actually, if I recall, from high school to college, now that I think about it, I didn't have a year gap. I went straight in. It was between my bachelor's and my master's that I took a year off. Mm-hmm. And this was after you became a Baha'i? Yeah. After that year was up, what happened? I, uh, I, went, I did indeed go to graduate school and came down to North Carolina. And why North Carolina? Um, I had applied to several schools, and a couple had accepted me, but North Carolina included an economic assistance package where I was a teacher assistant. Mm -hmm. So they provided the money. We didn't have the money to go to graduate school otherwise. Right. What was your focus in graduate school? My aim had been to get enough of physics under my belt that I could go into the philosophy of science with a degree of serious understanding of physics. Mm-hmm. But I was really interested in the more obscure forms of quantum mechanics and how that might explain what the world is like or, or not explain it. But it turns out that the person that I thought was going to help me do all of that was in the midst of retiring when I got here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that wound up not being what I did. <laughs> I did pursue quantum mechanics as far as I could, pretty much, but then my thesis and my research turned in a completely different direction that became how we teach physics, especially the physics experiments that everyone goes through in high school or introductory college, 
and what's sort of wrong with all of that approach. And what was wrong? What is wrong with that approach? Well, it's very rote. Everything's there's no critical thinking involved. It's all you expect to get the right answer, and if necessary, the right answer can be provided to you by any other means. The hope was that you would learn how to do an experiment carefully and well so that you got the right answer, but the way everyone treats it is you do whatever you have to do in order to get the right answer, including fudging any data you want. So there's no no self-discovery going on. It's all, this is what the answer is supposed to be. Keep trying until you get the right answer. So people sort of stumble around doing whatever they need to do in order to get the right answer, whether it's follow the directions or something else. And what approach do you did you investigate? It was officially called a constructivist model where people construct their own knowledge. They're allowed freedom to come up with their own approaches, but then it's actually a more careful application of the scientific method where you look at what you did and then criticize, give creative feedback on what you did and then how that affected your results until you're actually doing the experiment carefully and right. But it also allows for the possibility of basically turning the experiment in a different direction so that you can still be performing an experiment, just not the one that they assigned you, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But you still pursued it in a careful way, and you wind up measuring something else, possibly, but you did it right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, physics is a pretty good field of science, so you can actually do lots of things in physics and still get, quote, the right answer. And did you experiment with this method with students? Yeah, there was a little bit of that. Mm -hmm. You got your master's degree in... In physics. Physics. With a thesis about how physics is actually taught. Mm -hmm. Um, My minor was in science education, which isn't quite the same thing as a certification, so you can be employed in the public school system. Mm -hmm. Um, That was probably a mistake. Uh, So when when you... I, I couldn't qualify for a job teaching when I graduated. Uh, so what did you do after you graduated? Um, I wound up doing uh, bagel baking. <laughs> that was my long-standing initial job for a couple of years. Uh, by the end of it, I was actually the highest paid hourly employee in the entire state of North Carolina for this company. And I would train in- incoming new managers. Managers felt comfortable leaving the store while I was there and would leave me in charge, so to speak. They wanted me to pursue administration or managerial levels, but that wasn't what I was interested in doing in life. What were you interested in doing? Essentially, finding some way to make a difference and, and work for the good of humanity, and bagel baking didn't seem to really be that for me. <laughs> um, there were a couple of other jobs along the way that sort of fit the bill of being to pay the bills, but it weren't really long-term pursuits. But then I wound up doing computer tech support work, at a public school, and I, I guess you could say I blossomed. Mm. Um, I did pretty well. Um, again, I sort of walked into the field without knowing anything and then did as best I could to master it and then tried to serve teachers and students and make everything work so that they could actually not have to complain about the computer, at least, about how things were going. Mm-hmm. And now that's evolved to the point where I'm actually responsible for a lot of servers and global relationships between computers that kind of stuff. Is this still at, at the school, or have you moved on to... Well, I wound up with uh, a school system, and then I switched to a different school system. Mm-hmm. Specialization is in Macintosh. Uh-huh. Both desktop clients and servers. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for 10 years. Yeah, okay. 
You're married? I am. And uh, tell me about how you met your wife. <laughs> I had a roommate while I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing my master's degree. And he was uh, going through graduate school for electrical engineering. And he got an opportunity to go get, a, get a, go get a job in the field before he finished his degree. So he thought that was the right thing for him to do. So he went. He went down to Wilmington, North Carolina. And later, I forget all the details, but basically his job didn't work out the way he thought it was. So he came back to finish his degree. While he was down there, he went on a date with somebody and came back and told me that she was too deep for him and that maybe I hit, hit it off with her or something like that. So you were known. You were known to have some depth. I was. Yeah, I'm a pretty philosophical, mystical type of guy. Mm-hmm. That was the last I heard of it at that point. I think about a year later, I was involved a bit with the Baha'is in Recovery Fellowship Group, the Birth Group. I don't know if you've heard of them. Tell me about it. They're kind of a 12-step program, kind of like Alcoholic Anonymous or Alateen, applying within a Baha'i context, uh, adapting essentially the 12 steps of AA a Baha'i context a little bit. There's how, really how, not a lot they change. Oh, not a lot has been changed? Not a lot, no. Yeah. In what so way has it been adapted? Well, there, in AA, there'd be a vague statement about a higher power, for example, and I think the birth statements explicitly say God, that mm. kind of thing. Okay. There's very little that's really changed. Occasionally, mm. if a group really got organized, they, I think they might approach an assembly for sponsorship or something like that. Assembly being a local governing Baha'i council. Right. And what happened was there was kind of the founders of the United States birth organization were on a tour around the United States, and they were coming through our area and looking for, and everywhere they went, they were doing essentially within the Baha'i community public talks about birth, BIRF. And I invited them to have a, such a meeting at my apartment, and my wife-to-be, Sally, came to that meeting and I didn't know she was coming. I didn't even know who she was, except that my former roommate had at one point dated someone whom I, I hardly remembered at all. And after the meeting, she actually found me and introduced herself to me and told her that she had dated a guy who referred to me, Stephen Collins, <laughs> and I'm glad to finally meet you. And I said, oh, you're Sally. Oh, you're the lady that, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so that's how we met. <laughs> and, and it turns out there. James was his name. James was right. We're both pretty deep folks. Mm-hmm. And so how long ago, how long have you been married? That was the summer, September of 91. And I understand you just adopted a child? Indeed. Um, in uh, 2005. Mm-hmm. We went to Ukraine and got a little girl. What was the adoptive experience like? Oh, my God. <laughs> we uh, contracted with a, a nonprofit, and I was told by the end of it that we could write our own book on the whole experience. Some of the things that went wrong, so to speak, are we got sick, and both of us, Sally and I, both got sick and spent a week in a Ukrainian hospital with essentially no one speaking English. Mm. On the other end of the sort of experience, we had actually had some contact with the Baha'i community in Ukraine through this whole process. Mm -hmm. They weren't officially helping us or providing any services, but... You know, there were people that we could reach out to on a night when we didn't have anything else to do, and, you know, is there some meeting we could go to or visit with some folks or something. And the town that we arrived at where our daughter-to-be was, we had to find some place to stay. 
And while we, the first night we managed to get into a hotel basically on the good graces of the manager knowing the person who was officially helping us through the whole process in Ukraine, they didn't have room for us the other night. So you know, we kind of called around and, and the translator was calling around and word had spread through the Baha'i community that we were headed to the city. So that one of them actually called us and we had cell phones then insisted that we come over and visit, and actually they insisted we stay there. Mm-hmm. So we wound up staying at this one person's home. Tanya is her name. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, if they hadn't been of assistance, we probably wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful to be there. Yeah. I have uh, movie clips, actually. Uh, at one point, they were actually up on the Internet. Now, how long were you in Ukraine? I think it was a total of five weeks. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to, the average is two to three weeks, and we were there five weeks. One week because we were sick in bed, another week because there were some paperwork hassles. Mm-hmm. But uh, it all worked out. Well, my daughter was certainly a scary thing to look at from her health perspective when we saw her. If you looked in her eyes, you could see there was someone there, if you know what I mean. She really tried to relate to you, even though it was obvious she was in physical danger. She was so sick. How old was she? 15 months, I think, was when we first saw her. Mm-hmm. And within a week, we decided to adopt her. What was her ailment? Um, it's kind of an obscure name, uh, diabetes insipidus. It has nothing to do with sugar diabetes. It's, uh, it's another condition entirely. Mm. Um, but it essentially means that she couldn't recycle water, which doesn't sound like something that people do all the time, but it actually is. The reason your urine is yellow is because your body is pulling water out and leaving the waste product that stays in urine, mm-hmm. in the urine. And she couldn't do that. It gets into a long story, but essentially she had an infection in her head that was damaging the place in her brain responsible for releasing the hormones that kick the kidneys into allowing you to recycle water. Mm. Wow. But that took another couple of weeks to figure out. It's, it's a life-ending disease if you don't treat it. How long ago was this? Just over two years. So she's completely recovered? She's functionally recovered. She's on medication that she has to take almost kind of in the same vein as a, as a regular sugar diabetic where you have to take insulin. Mm-hmm. It's a different medicine, and she can take it orally instead of with shots, but she's on regular medication, and she's fine. She's thriving. Oh, that's great. She's a wonderful little girl. Yeah, that's great. Are you still working for the same uh, uh, the school system? system? It's another school system right now. Yeah. And speaking of computer techie stuff, I noticed that you have made entries into Wikipedia. Yes. Can you explain to us what Wikipedia is and how how that works? Okay. Um, Wikipedia is an online encyclopedia where individuals can create or alter or add to any content at all if you do so haphazardly, other folks will generally change or get rid of whatever you did. But if you are careful and, and can cite your references about why you say something is true, then it generally sticks. Mm-hmm. I don't know, there's probably several thousand people out there that contribute to Wikipedia, and I'm just one of them. And what entries have you made? Well, there's an entry called the Outer Solar System, which I was the first one to make. There's a few others i made. I think I did a lot of work on the Wesley Tudor poll 
was kind of an obscure figure from early Baha'i history. Can you explain who he was? He was the person who discovered and communicated to the British army the threat to Abdul Baha's life. Now, who is who is Ab- by the World War One and the Ottoman Empire? Okay, who's Abdul Baha? Abdul Baha is the son of Baha'u'llah, son of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, mm-hmm. who was officially appointed by Baha'u'llah as his successor and the head of the faith after him. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, it's 1911 up through well, it's World War One was 1917, 1918. The Ottoman Empire was a fairly hostile vaguely Muslim empire, actually very Muslim empire, and I won't get into all the history, but the Baha'is were viewed as an as a, um, embarrassment or a uh, political challenge or a uh, heretical group, all of which are more or less true and more or less not true, depending on which one you want to talk about. And why, why did they feel that way? Essentially, they had power and they didn't want anyone redefining what power meant and Baha'is had a tendency to be very group-oriented and nonpartisan, and didn't particularly endorse the power of uh, religious authority in terms of clerics or mullahs. We had a different approach to religion than the Muslims did. Mm-hmm. So there's also a sort of a theoretical, uh, theological uh, definition inside Islam that says there can be no, pro- no more prophets after Muhammad. Baha'is, of course, have a different take on that. But our very existence was a sort of threat to them, and that threat continues down to today, where in Egypt, Baha'is are being denied ID cards, and in Iran, Baha'is are being denied incomes and job opportunities because we're not the favored religion. Mm-hmm. So in any case, some, some people in the Ottoman government felt that Abdu'l-Bahá should not be left to survive if uh, they were going to lose Palestine geographically to the British, so there was a a fairly serious threat made and communicated around that if they had to retreat from Haifa, Israel, or Palestine at the time, that they would kill Abdu'l-Bahá as they left. And that information made its way to Wesley Tudor Pohl, who then informed the British government he actually had to work pretty hard at that. There's a book out that called The Servant, the General, and Soldier, or The Soldier, the General, and the Servant, something like that. Mm-hmm. <coughs> does a very good job of reviewing all of the information about that. Well, what was Wesley Tudor Pohl's position? He was essentially an intelligence officer for the British in Egypt at that time. Mm-hmm. And he was, the, like I said, his contacts, I guess you could say, his, his relationship with the Baha'is, let that information about the threat to Abdu'l-Bahá get to him, and he forwarded on through the administration. Then it came back down to the general, General Allenby, in Egypt as he was trying to advance into Palestine. Allenby didn't know anything about who Abdu'l-Bahá was, so he handed the job back to his intelligence department to explain what this meant, and what it, why does it matter. So Wesley Tudor Pohl wound up writing the explanation about it, too, to the general. Mm-hmm. And then the general adapted his plans for the advance into Palestine specifically to head to Israel, um, head to Haifa, excuse me, head to Haifa as quickly as he could, basically to cut off any attempt to kill Abdu'l-Bahá. Mm. And then he went around from there. 
So you made this entry into Wikipedia for uh, Wesley, Wesley Tudor, Tudor Pohl. Mm-hmm. Um, I also discovered that Wesley Tudor Pohl was the person who gave Shoghi Effendi the telegram saying that Abdu'l-Bahá had passed away. And Shoghi Effendi is? He's the appointed one from Abdu'l-Bahá, who was then the head of the faith of the Baha'is after Abdu'l-Bahá passed, called the guardian, the grandson of Abdu'l-Bahá. Mm-hmm. You and your wife are involved in a number of nonprofit or service organizations. We try. Maybe you could explain your involvement in some of them. Some of them could include generally organic agriculture kind of institutions. For example, my wife runs a nonprofit called Seawolf or Southeast Willing Workers on Organic Farms. Mm. And that organization is about maintaining a list of organic farmers who are looking for people that would work for them as interns. And then what people who wish to be interns do is contact CWF or any of the other organizations or others around the country and around the world for that list of farmers, and then they contact the farmers for looking for opportunities. Another one would be CFSA, or Carolina Farm Stewardship Association, in North Carolina, they are the organic certification supervisors, I guess you could call it. I don't know. They provide the certification, the testing, to make sure that the farmers are organic from a legal point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and before it was a matter of law, there were sort of conventions about what organic and not organic was and how to get organic if you weren't. And CFSA kind of helped farmers along that way. And they actually advocate for organic farmers and help to popularize their understanding of farming and help to bridge information where necessary like uh, I mean there was a point in time where organic farming was very unknown and simply getting known by local restaurants as a supplier of organic produce meant having to explain what organic meant Mm. Um, so the CFSA organization would do that kind of thing Mm -hmm. they also would host conferences and other things and Sally and I at one point actually hosted a conference workshop on spirituality and organic agriculture and how, how did you tie the two? That was about 10 years ago. We reviewed various religion statements on agriculture and the ethics of agriculture as well as the importance of agriculture mm. and that organic agriculture fit that kind of model very well. The respect for the land, the respect for nature, cooperating with nature, but not assuming that you had to either introduce artificial ways of control or just let it go. Mm-hmm. That there's a middle ground where you can constructively engage with nature on making agriculture work, but there were ways of doing that in the, the demands of nature, if you will. And that if you take shortcuts by applying either fertilizer, pesticides, and things like that, you can have lots of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like raising children. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you raise a child with the expectation that you're going to tell a child what they're going to be like, that's kind of like conventional agriculture, where if you spend lots of money and make sure they're exposed to one particular kind of stimulation, i.e., you know, an expensive college or something, that that will guarantee that they will come out to be a certain way. The equivalent in agriculture would be you spend a lot of money on fertilizer so that they kind of naturally force to grow too quickly or too easily, and they have no natural defenses against 
test so that a minor infestation turns into a golden opportunity for these animals to just eat up the plant. So then you have to get pesticide involved so that they are protected. But then that can cause poisons to build up in their system and on and on it goes. Mm-hmm. And that, that if you approach things from a natural perspective, there are natural ways of balancing things. It takes skill and understanding to achieve that balance and to maintain it, but that your rewards in the long run are much more productive land and you don't have to spend nearly as much money to keep things going. Well, what is the Baha'i perspective on agriculture? I guess I could say that the Baha'i perspective on agriculture is a fairly big change from the way things are, so much so that it would be kind of hard to explain what the attitude is. Mm-hmm. Because in the, in the Baha'i writings, agriculture is conceived of as the fundamental component of the society or the culture of a civilization, that the agriculturalist or the farmer almost has the priority. They should be one of the more tended or, or cared after professions. The whole ec- economic system should depend on farmers Whereas right now what you have is farmers who essentially hand over everything they do to a company that then sells that to the people. They essentially control both sides. They control the farmers, tell them what to grow or not to grow or how to grow it, and they control what people buy. Mm. Whereas the Baha'i approach would emphasize the farmers as the rightful sort of leads in the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, does your wife, Sally, has a background in agriculture? She does. Mm -hmm. Um, She has a bachelor's degree in conventional agriculture, which she always has to sort of apologize for. Why is that? Because she no longer supports conventional agriculture. Mm -hmm. She supports organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. She didn't know too much about it, and in those days there was not very much organic agriculture. Mm -hmm. Any other organizations that you're involved with? Oh... Close to 15 years ago, um, shortly after we got married, we were two Baha'is in a county and wanted to do something for Martin Luther King. So we started our own daytime observance of Martin Luther King and uh, his holiday. Mm -hmm. Initially, there was just the two of us, and sometimes we got another Baha'i to come by and play a guitar or something. But we began to get a few people to show up, and... After a little bit of growth with that, we wound up being invited to participate with a a local church to sort of essentially produce the program, and they would be the facility where it would happen. That immediately got our numbers up much higher, and then over the next 10 years, we reached the point where we had 100 people in the room or the the, the church area, and uh, we were outgrowing the church. Now, where was this? In in, In Chatham County, North Carolina. And is that like near Raleigh or? It's um, in the countryside west of Raleigh. Okay, so you were sort of in the rural area? Yes. Okay. So it grew beyond the bounds of the church you were using? Right. And then we kind of nosed around, and there was another church quite willing to host such a thing that was a, an African American church. They very much wanted us to come there, and then they also actually wanted to help become very directly involved with having it happen. Mm hmm. From the beginning, we tried as much, and as we grew, we succeeded at making sure that we had as diverse a religious approach. So we had Buddhists and Muslims and Jews present little talks or speeches or something, 
um, or just read writing from their religion about brotherhood, unity of humanity, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We also tried to have sort of a, a multi-art approach, so we would have speakers, we would have singers, we would have performers of various kinds participate. So we tried to be multi-religious and multi-artist, artist mm-hmm. uh, discipline in our approach. Mm-hmm. And we were the only daytime observances in the county. All the other observances were at nighttime. Mm-hmm. Um, we had one multicultural fair that we hosted that turned out quite well. That one event was very successful. There were people that turned out, and then we got asked from there to go to a public festival, mostly trying to bring the Hispanic and the white communities together at a, at a, a town called Siler City, North Carolina. We didn't play that big a role in the actual festival, but we did participate. Mm-hmm. The multicultural fair, I think, was was a pretty good pretty good event. It did, did a lot, I think, for a few people. Sally and I are both members of the UNA, the United Nations Association of the United States. Mm-hmm. But the whole idea of a multicultural, multi, multinational world, and then how do you bring that sort of diverse nations into cooperation with each other? Every time the organization of humanity got larger, there was more peace. Essentially, you had it a long time ago. You would have had villages and cities that self-organized, and then you'd have other cities, and you'd have fights between cities. Mm-hmm. Well, then you created nations so that all the cities were united so they didn't fight each other anymore. You had discussions and compromises and, and alignments of resources that were peaceably distributed to make sense for the nation, but then you'd have other nations you'd have war with, and we've reached the point where those nations now really need to cooperate, and we've kind of tried treaties and, and different approaches between nations and it's too easy for a nation to just change their mind and, and break their treaty or something. So we had World War One and World War Two, which were essentially secret treaties and just giving up on treaties and doing whatever you wanted anyway. And out of both of those wars, you had an involvement of multinational cooperation. The first one was the League of Nations, and then the second one was the United Nations, both of which try to bring forward the idea that multinational cooperation is not only possible but needed, but it's still kind of voluntary. Mm. So at some point we hope there will be a, a multinational congress where people can work out whatever needs to be worked out on a cooperative basis rather than having to settle things by fighting. Mm. Yeah, I've always looked at it as basically until the world realizes that the problems we're facing require a global solution rather than a national solution, the problems will never really get solved. Right, right. Uh, it, it's hard to do that until you can have some respect for the other folks. Right. And that applies for them, for us, and us for them, and us both for somebody else. And some of that will mean learning about what it's like over there and for them to learn what it's like over here. Mm-hmm. And there will be good and bad things on both sides that have to change mm-hmm. as a result. Yeah. You and Sally have been involved in issues with the Native peoples? Uh, indeed. Sally especially has a long history. Um, her, 
her family, she's actually a second generation Baha'i, her family in her childhood, her father worked at a Native American reservation, and so Sally had kind of some exposure to that culture and very much liked what she went through from that contact. And to some extent or other, we've tried to keep that connection alive or, or to participate in some of that. My involvement with that has been sort of coming into it. I didn't really know much about it to begin with and all of that, but I'd, I'd love to reference people to a wonderful paper by Christopher Buck called Challenge to High Universalism, I think it is, something like that. Um, it's an excellent, excellent review of the Baha'i stance on the spirituality of Native Americans. And how does one find that paper? Search the internet for Christopher Buck, and there'll be a couple of different papers. Okay. It's referenced in several Wikipedia articles now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I think the main website that houses most of the um, Baha'i papers that are online, I think it's called ilibrary.com. And if you look in there for Christopher Buck, B-U-C-K, um, you'll see his paper and amongst all of the other papers he did. In Christopher Buck's paper, he specifically outlines a couple of examples of Native American spiritual leaders and characterizes them for prophets of God. Hmm. And he gives an example of three of them. The one I remember offhand is, his title is The Peacemaker. He was the founder of the Iroquois Confederacy, mm. which was to some extent an influence on the formation of the American government, the United States government, that it, it has various councils of people and a power-sharing structure and a constitution. All of these are elements that were true of the Iroquois Confederacy. Mm. And this peacemaker was the originator, the, the person who brought the tribes in the Northeast together to form that Iroquois Confederacy. Um, a, a more widely known person is Hiawatha. Hiawatha was the assistant to the peacemaker. In a, in a prophetic sense, he was the Aaron to Moses. Mm. How did Sally's parents become Baha'is? That was in the 1920s. I think they, I'm, I'm sure they both became Baha'is before they met each other. Sally's father is first-generation American from Ukraine. There's a book out called How They Became Baha'is, and that actually tells some of the story of Michael, Sally's father. Mm. He's actually profiled in there. Mm. I remember he was a pacifist. Sally's mother, Margaret, um, they're both still alive. They live in Greensboro, North Carolina right now. Margaret was a school teacher in Michigan, and then I think she went to Yale and became a nurse practitioner, or it might be the other way around. She might have been a nurse and went to Yale and then became a teacher. But somewhere in there, she ran across someone and learned about the Baha'i faith that way. Mm. But it was, like I said, that was 1920s. Yeah. So, Stephen, what does the future hold for you? Change. <laughs> Endless change. The challenge of being a father. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter, who's lovely and challenging all at the same time. Mm-hmm. My circumstances with work, I know that in the, in the commercial world, people are used to the idea of you know, changing companies at the flip of a coin very easily. Um, it's a little slower than that in, in public employment, working for a school system, but that's probably in my, in my card someday in the future. More study of the Baha'i writings, mm-hmm. maybe more Wikipedia articles. 
I've been reading, and, and one, actually one of the latest articles I wrote, just wrote was about a, a school in uh, Canada called the Nancy Campbell Collegiate Institute, if I recall correctly. I ran across it because I was searching through Wikipedia to references to the Baha'i Faith. There was a school that they had bought, and there was a we- uh, an article about the school they had bought, and there was a kind of, you know, sense of being taken over by the Baha'is in the article, and it didn't come off very favorably, so I wanted to write an article about the, the people that took over the school. In nine years after taking over the school, they turned it into one of the top 16 schools in the entire province of Ontario. Hmm. So they took a, a school that was losing money and going out of business, and they turned it into one of the best schools in the, in the province, and, and Ontario is huge, so hmm. not a small step. Yeah, Gordon Naylor, the founder, yeah. is actually, I think, trying to now start a college or a university or something. I, I believe that was his original purpose, but uh, or his original goal, but he has to sort of build up to it. Yeah. But I wound up writing that article kind of to address the question of who were these people that were buying out the school that there was a Wikipedia article about. The one I wrote immediately before that was a Native American whose name was Phil Lucas. Oh, Phil yeah. Lucas recently passed away, and I saw various emails and highlights about him, and there was no mention of him in Wikipedia, and it quickly was obvious that he deserved one because he had been involved with over 100 films and TV episodes and series and had been actor and writer and producer and documentarian and lots of good stuff. Um, so I wound up writing a Wikipedia article about him mm. um, and adding that to the list of what did he play in, and what what was what's his significant his, his, contribution to his, film industry? Right, his his sort of title, I guess, and this is from uh, I remember University of California Native American or studies in Native American professor. I don't remember his name, but he said that Phil Lucas was the foremost documentarian of Native Americans. Period. I kind of recognize his picture that when I've seen it, I, it. I've seen him somewhere on TV, but I can't remember where. But when I look through the list of, of things that he's done, he worked on Northern Exposure, which was a, a series that I watched years ago. He did a couple of episodes with MacGyver. He also did a, a huge number of documentaries of his own, not even really particularly of, of interest to the white Americans. It uh, wasn't trying to explain Native Americans to folks. It was kind of a, a Native American-centric exploration. He would review different communities and their struggles and their triumphs. There was one community he profiled where it was said that everybody was an alcoholic and that over, I think, a process of about 10 years, the whole community went dry um, and all of the cultural changes that had to go with that. There was another community that had inherited some kind of misplaced, I guess you could say, sexual practice of, of a kind of abuse of children. That didn't affect everybody in the community, but it was large scale. I, I don't know, it, I, it's not directly related, but you've perhaps heard of the stories of female genital manu- uh, uh, mutilation. mutilation. Yeah, Not that exact thing, but something like that, some mm-hmm. cultural norm that this one... Native American population had, and he documented the existence of it, which helped them document that it should change. Mm. So not the kind of 
you know, it's not cowboys and Indians or, or other things like that. It was very what's going on in the Native American community and what should people be doing about it from a Native American perspective. Another one he did was a basketball team of Native Americans and our struggle to maintain themselves as a team um, against the whole question of success. He did a lot of good work. Mm -hmm. He was very much enamored, from what I can tell from the emails of people and a couple of blogs that mention him favorably. People remember him very warmly. Mm. I think he deserved it, from what I read. Yeah. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. You're quite welcome. And good luck to you in the future. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Collins, a Baha'i and computer support engineer for a school system in North Carolina. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
all I can call these things my own Then I give them to you Soon will our handful of days be gone And we shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark With those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you like giving away what isn't mine Can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own Gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own that I give them to you Can I really call these things my Hello, I'm Warren Odesse-Gillette, host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio's sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. Adorning the same tree Roses of one 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.